You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Hello, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the co-founder and CEO with Impetus Digital. At Impetus Digital, we have built some of the best-in-class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We have worked with life science companies from across the globe over the past 14 years to help them with everything from virtual advisory boards to digital medical education to online investigator meetings. And since the launch of our award-winning Insight Events platform, we've also been helping pharma companies with large corporate events, innovation hackathons, um, MSL and sales rep training, and everything in between. But more importantly, at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations with some of the leading edge thinkers, the digital provocateurs, and the healthcare thought leaders, we can all work together to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. So I'm super excited to having one of these digital thought leaders at the table with me today. And this is Dr. Amelia Malampakis, and I know that I didn't say that correctly, but we will get her to correct that for me. It's a beautiful last name. Um, And Dr. Amelia is a neuroscientist with a PhD and a postdoc from University College London, or UCL, in linguistics, neuroscience, as well as psychology. So if you thought two were enough, three is uh, even better. She's an expert in using language as a biomarker for cognition. And there are fewer actually than 10 people across the world that does exactly what she does. So definitely a very unique set of of, um, uh, uh, attributes as well. Her startup Thymia is a platform that uses actually video games. So this is based on neuropsychology to help doctors quickly and accurately and objectively assess and monitor mental health conditions, such as things like depression. So Amelia won the Young Innovators Award actually in 2020 and 2021, and was recently named one of the top scientists for mental health worldwide. Amelia, so happy to have you on the show today. Brilliant, thank you so much. And yeah, you actually pronounced my last name perfectly. I'm so happy. (laughs) Which is probably a first, I think. Yeah, but uh, yeah, brilliant. So thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for the great introduction. Absolutely, so quite a bit going on there. Um, Mm -hmm. I love, I wonder if you can actually just spend a couple of minutes with our audience. You have such an impressive background. Again, with your academic background, you know, getting the PhD, your postdoc, um, and that whole focus, and also your experience about working in the gaming industry, like the fact that you were, you know, for example, took a machine learning course at Stanford. Tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and how you ended up landing being, becoming an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, I think uh, it is quite an odd trajectory and I've kind of accumulated a lot of different specialties over time, which actually is probably an attribute a lot of entrepreneurs have, even if they don't realize it at the time. Um, but certainly I didn't begin my academic career kind of aiming to start my own business in any way. I was very much focused on becoming an academic and doing really um, research into mental health conditions, neurodegenerative disorders, etc. So um, I did that for about 12 years. I started out in linguistics and experimental psychology, kind of moved over into neuroscience, and then I, I combined those for my PhD and my postdoc. So in effect, what I ended up doing for those 12 years um, across various uh, academic institutes, um, including University of Chicago, but predominantly uh, UCL, was looking at these different patient populations. So starting, let's say, with Alzheimer's disease, um, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, and then moving on into things like uh, acquired brain uh, injuries, and also finally into mood disorders like uh, depression or psychosis, schizophrenia, etc. Um, but for all of them, kind of the unifying factor was using their language as a way to assess their cognitive decline or their cognitive progress in response to treatment, essentially. Um, so although it sounds quite disparate or it sounds like it's not, uh, like it's a little bit odd in the trajectory, the, the unifying aspect was actually language. Um, so I kind of expected to stay in academia and indeed, that was my trajectory until actually during my PhD, um, my best friend at the time ended up developing depression and she was also an academic. It's very common in academics. And I kind of saw her go through the whole process here in the UK of trying to get help for her condition. And it was amazing how quickly the condition progressed and how quickly she deteriorated. Um, and the system just wasn't able to help her in time. Um, she did get seen by a psychiatrist, but within just three short months, she ended up um, trying to take her own life. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, um, I was the one who actually found her. And as a best friend, obviously you feel a great sense of responsibility. Like, why did I not see this happening before it happened? But what I couldn't get my head around was why did her psychiatrist, her clinicians, not see this coming and they'd only seen her a few days before. Um, and so that's what prompted me to look into the psychiatric system more, not just here in the UK, but also abroad. And I realized all these things I'd been finding out, all these amazing kind of discoveries that have been happening in neuroscience were not being used at all in psychiatry to help clinicians. They were still stuck with these incredibly subjective um, questionnaires. So like if you, if a clinician suspects you have depression, they'll ask you on a scale of like one to five, how sad do you feel? Or, you know, how suicidal do you feel? But incredibly subjective. Um, and uh, that's what made me quit my postdoc and decide to kind of make the jump. Long-winded explanation, but hopefully gives Yeah, a no, there's a lot to dig into that, Amelia, quite mm. impressive. You said something that I thought was really interesting and you said it's quite common for people in mm -hmm. academics to have mm -hmm. or experience depression. Why do you yeah. think there's a correlation there? I think it's an interesting one. I'm not sure how many sociological um, studies have been done on that. However, from my experience in academia, looking across the different um, subjects, it is very common because I think 
there is this tendency for people who are academics are typically overachievers and they've Mm. spent the entirety of their life kind of moving along and getting praise and getting kind of all these academic achievements and being recognized in in so many ways and then suddenly they get to their PhD and their postdoc and there's no more courses for them to take there's no more grades for them to get there's one goal over the course of three or four years which is to get your PhD written up Um, and quite often you don't have that support around you anymore and you feel quite alone because you are often working alone particularly in some subject areas rather than others and I think that there's like several interesting factors that contribute towards you feeling very stressed and also quite frequently um, depressed Uh, so I'm not sure if that covers the entirety of it but that's what I've seen at least Um, so yeah it was it was very common I think I just, Probably the majority I, of my friends had that. Yeah, I find it really interesting. Just as a sidebar, we'll jump back mm-hmm. into thymia and all the wonderful things that are happening there. But the reason I think this is fascinating is, you know, as one thinks about going through, you know, the evolution of of maturation and growing up and going through school, and the whole idea here is that when you're in that infrastructure or that um, it's almost something that buoys you when you mm-hmm. have that level of structure. Um, And, you know, a lot of times when we move into adulthood and we get out of typically university with most people just doing a bachelor's or something at an undergraduate level, you're suddenly left in the world. And, you know, it's sort of like coming out of prison in some ways and you suddenly are on your own. There are no rules. Um, All the that infrastructure that you grew up in are, you know, is no longer available. And it's all about your own personal decisions now. So I'm just curious if the PhD route or getting the doctorate just keeps you in that infrastructure longer um, and suddenly you're kind of out of prison and you, you're not really sure how to sort of manage your own personal decisions. I'm curious if, if there might be some kind of uh, correlate there. Uh, yeah, potentially. I think actually probably what we're seeing with, with PhD students and with, with postdocs is you're just having a very kind of condensed group of people who don't really talk about very much other than their research and they're just kind of bouncing off each other and like magnifying a little bit any feelings of anxiety or depression that there may be there is kind of a ripple effect happening however if you look outside of academia as well um, you see this across you know all walks of life it's depression anxiety is incredibly prevalent especially now post-covid um like the actual depression rates have, have doubled since then so i wouldn't be surprised to see 18 year olds 19 year olds 20 year olds in all walks of life actually having very similar issues um this is just kind of my personal experience with with academics you have done a phenomenal amount of work around the connection of, of language and language being a biomarker of cognition, understanding, comprehension. And so I was wondering if we could just kind of, you know, double click on that for a little bit and really just talking about the definition of language for this purpose. So specifically things like loudness, intonation, like tell us a little bit about how language helps to inform us of of people's understanding. Yeah, so I think, Language is like it's it's a very, very broad topic in itself. Um, But what we do at Themia and what I focused on in my research as well is essentially you break down language into various elements. Uh, First off, 
you break language down into production elements and also into comprehension elements. So what you say and what you understand when you're talking to people and listening to them. Um, at Themia for now, we're focusing on the production side. Um, and that in itself can also be split into two like kind of broad categories. You have the physical properties of voice. So how somebody sounds like what you said, basically intonation, um, articulation speed, how fast are you speaking? If you're pausing, if you are kind of monotonous or you're very kind of musical in your intonation patterns. Um, but then the other kind of branch is looking at the content of what people are saying. So ignoring how they sound and focusing on, on what the words are, the structures are, and how basically you are conveying an idea or maybe failing to convey an idea. Um, if you look at both of these streams, there are incredibly strong signals for almost all cognitive disorders, including um, mood disorders, essentially. So to give you a few examples, some of these things uh, psychiatrists are really kind of in tune with, but also people who don't have a psychiatric degree or who are not doctors, a lot of them are actually more in tune with this than, than they know. So typically, if you think of somebody being depressed, you may think of somebody being like really slow in how they talk or really negative or kind of monotonous in their speech pattern. And you get this feeling that they are actually low um, and you know this intuitively. What we do is we actually measure it more objectively with numbers and with statistics. And there's a little bit more to it than that, but it's essentially identifying different features in people's speech that create um, a sign for depression. If you want to think about it a little bit more broadly, um, any cognitive disorder or mood disorder that you're looking at is basically a difference in how people's brains are functioning. And that difference in function or a difference in how they're wired is expressed in a difference essentially in behavior. Behavior includes language, but it includes also things like reactions, it includes eye gaze, it includes facial expressions. And at Themia, we're kind of looking at all of these together to identify the signatures that make up the different disorders, essentially. And each one has a unique signature. So let's actually dig into Thymia a little bit. So as a platform, as a company, I'm theoretically a physician. I'm a general practitioner. I see patients all the time in my clinic or I'm speaking to them online through telemedicine. What, how am I interacting with your company and how do I find Thymia? Like what, what is the interaction or how do you market that? Yeah, so we work predominantly with mental health clinicians, so not yet with kind of general practitioners, but a little bit further down the line once people have been referred to a mental health clinic or a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, and we work with the, the clinics or the clinicians. So it's more of a B2B um, product rather than directly with the patients. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do essentially, the, the core tech of Themia, what makes us so special is combining voice with video and video games to assess depression. But the way we've packaged it is actually um, also very interesting. We've built around this core technology, a much larger full clinician suite that aims to kind of save time and address a lot of other pain points clinicians have in their day-to-day -day lives, as well as giving them the power of themia and biomarkers. So as a clinician, once a patient comes to you who you think would be a good match, um, we would automatically create a profile for them and start to gather data from them at home before their first appointment. Then when the actual appointment takes place, they can take, uh, they can have the appointment through Themia. So we offer our own 
highly safe and secure teleconferencing mm -hmm. platform, which we can anonymously kind of plug into as well and start gathering data during the teleconferencing mm -hmm. um, event itself. Mm -hmm. And this is completely, you know, uh, up to the clinician, the patient, if they want this, you know, it, they consent to doing this essentially. But if we do have access and we, we start to gather the biomarkers, after this, we create certain reports straight away, including um, transcriptions of what's been said, which are annotated with sentiments. So we call these smart transcriptions um, and also things like clinician letters, but also looking at the biomarkers. And then that's kind of the appointment part. And after that, at home between the sessions, um, we um, kind of prompt patients to engage with Themia to play the video games, to do nice, um, fun, engaging activities like interacting with animated illustrations that are really beautiful and calming. And all the time we're gathering data from them and keeping the clinician informed. So if you think about it, it's kind of a really broad and very well connected system that helps you from start to finish. And for clinicians, if you think about it right now, they would typically see a patient once every four or eight weeks. They would ask some subjective questions. They would have to write everything down, pen and paper. And then there's a gap of four to eight weeks where there's nothing. And that's typically when all the suicide attempts occur, the episodes occur, and there's no way to monitor those. Um, we offer that way as well as everything else. Beautiful. So you were alluding to originally sort of the old fashioned way and just right there as well to the old fashioned way that these clinicians are seeing mm -hmm. these patients with, you know, um, me mental health conditions. And one of the things you alluded to was sort of these old school questionnaires, kind of stagnant mm -hmm. 2D, asking very kind of biased questions. Tell us what's different about the onboarding process with your questionnaires and what other data besides what you believe that you know, and have, a lot of times you don't really know that you don't know, how are we capturing that information through other, other kinds of data points? So basically what we do with uh, Themia is we will also gather, we will create digitized versions of the same questionnaires that clinicians are using now, because obviously they still want to continue to have that as a point of reference. And it's a nice way to transition them into this more kind of advanced digital era, let's call it, uh, of big data, that we still give them those questionnaires. But at the same time, we're also getting the patients to play the video games. And through the video games, we are gathering um, three different data streams. We look at their voice, um, we look at their facial expressions and eye gaze patterns. And finally, we look at their reaction times and errors. So basic behavior, cognitive behavior, essentially. Um, here, through all three streams, we're looking at thousands of anonymized features. And based on these, we are creating, like our models create as an output, um, not just a, a classic kind of classification of whether we think somebody is or isn't depressed, but we also look at the severity level of depression. And we look also at quantifying certain core symptoms of depression, such as fatigue levels, working memory, impairment, changes in people's speed, things that clinicians are interested in, but they don't have ways to objectively measure. So we do all of that alongside the questionnaires. And all of that is available essentially before the appointment, during the actual appointment, and then afterwards as well. So you kind of have this accumulation of thousands of different features and biomarkers to help the clinician. So here, just to kind of hasten to add, Themia isn't, we're not positioning ourselves to replace the clinician in any way or to 
say, you know, you need to get rid of the questionnaires entirely. You need to completely forget what, what you've been using up until this point. Um, we will take over. We will diagnose. We will do the, all these things. It's not that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to help them by creating essentially this may sound a little bit grandiose, but creating essentially the equivalent of a blood test for depression. So you're not just going to take a blood test and not go to your GP to have it analyzed. Similarly, you're not just going to do Themia's um, analysis and then not go to your clinician with it. It's aimed to work hand in hand with the clinician for more objectivity. You've done a lot of work in machine learning and sort of smart algorithms and being able to learn as you know what depression looks like and what does it mean mm-hmm. and these other cognitive and also psycho um, uh, mental health conditions. So with these smart algorithms, when an, an individual enters into that circuit in that system, does the machine learning start to um, rate, you know, give parameters or reports based on that kind of overarching model? Or is there machine learning built into the N equals one, the individual, and does it get smart with that own individual's data? So it's comparing that individual's data from day one to that day, that individual's data and in day 365. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's the second of the two, essentially. So um, our models generally, we, we have, so essentially our models compare broadly um, every individual that we encounter with uh, a control group that we have um, gathered who we find uh, individuals within the control group who match this patient um, in terms of age, gender, first language, education level, and a number of other factors that could um, affect the different variables we're um, measuring. But really the strength of themia is that we look longitudinally at the same individual and our models are analyzing the same individual against themselves over time. That's how you see whether treatment is working or not. That's how you are able to kind of fine tune to the individual. Indeed, one of our particular sub models we have, our uh, fatigue model, essentially looks at seconds of your voice and it requires a few days of training to completely calibrate to you as an individual. So there, this particular submodel is completely calibrating to you, which makes it completely language agnostic, culture agnostic, accent agnostic. It doesn't matter if you have a speech impediment, it will still work. Um, I should also hasten to add that I'm, I'm not the one um, creating the AI. I'm not the genius behind that. I, I provide the ideas and the neuroscience and the language elements, but actually it's Stefano, my co-founder, who is the uh, brilliant AI um, genius who's bringing everything together. And we have a number of other amazing um, people on the team, like our chief science officer, um, Dr. Nick Cummings, our data scientist, Salvatore Fara, and they're, they're all uh, working together to, to make this a reality. So it's not just me as an individual. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, curious as well, too, we hear a lot about, you know, software as a medical device. And, you know, this becoming the new area in the U.S. with the FDA, there's the 510K accreditation, you know, um, there's abilities to do clinical trials with these things. Curious, before we talk about clinical trials and what the data says, is that what are you finding using Thymia as an intervention, sort of the software platform? Is it impacting patient outcomes? And if so, what does that look like? So... Of course, I would love to say that, you know, it's happening, having a massive impact on patients' lives, etc. Um, however, we haven't been testing this out 
um, for long enough with clinics live to be able to say that, um, or at least to be able to say with any, you know, conviction, the actual metrics or the numbers. What we have seen thus far is that we've found overwhelming engagement rates from patients. So patients who wouldn't want to engage with other platforms are actually engaging really well with ours. And this has been true across different age groups. So we also were a little bit worried in the beginning that maybe gamification, maybe the way we present things is actually more appealing to a younger audience potentially. But actually we've seen similar rates of engagement, over 95% of people loved the platform and enjoyed engaging with it from the age of 18 through to 75 years old without any difference across age groups, which was remarkable in itself, um, which kind of opens also the pathway to doing this for um, cognitive disorders in elderly uh, people more specifically. So that's that's all possible. Um, what makes Themia work and what will ensure that this actually has a measurable impact on patients' lives is that engagement rate. If they use it once and then they don't use it again, it's never gonna work. It's just, you know, it's a one-off um, assessment. Um, the, the beauty of Themia is really that engagement over time. Uh, and that's something we are seeing very strongly. So it's an interesting question about themia because, you know, on the one hand, it acts like a diagnostic, right? It's basically reading information as you're in interacting with it to provide reporting so that a clinician can help, you know, different medications or sleep schedules or whatever the intervention is. However, themia can also be the intervention. How do you differentiate between the two? And is the video games you know, the solution? Is it is that the engaging part or is that the intervention that changes the cognitive dysfunction or the mental health condition? Does it raise people's moods? Does it help them sleep? You know, is it the diagnostic and the intervention? So I think that's a really important and key kind of um, observation and distinction to make. So certainly there are ways to use video games and what we do in the platform we've created as an intervention in and of itself, essentially as part of the treatment or to be the end all treatment, um, that's possible. And indeed there are other companies doing similar things with other disorders, like there's Achille, for instance, doing this really well with ADHD um, in children, they use video games to train them um, and it's really effective as a medication almost. Um, but Themia's position for the moment is simply as an assessment and monitoring tool rather than an intervention tool. We don't really have any um, interest in going in that direction. We believe that we, you can use us essentially alongside your classic medication treatments, talking therapies, CBT, all those other things, potentially other platforms using video games, but our intention isn't really to be a treatment. It's more to provide the clinicians with objective tools to provide the treatment. That having been said, we are actually looking um, very closely at working together with psychedelic companies to assist them in um, their trialing of psychedelics as another tool to measure how they're doing. So we are kind of branching out into different assessments of different interventions, but not becoming the intervention itself. Got it, right. So an add-on or the, yeah. the diagnostic piece, which is great to be really clear about what you are and are not. We're in a, in, a, in a world of digital transformation. You know, we're hearing about the metaverse. We're hearing about, you know, AI, VR, headsets, and everybody's working on one. How does this impact potentially the way you start collecting your biometrics and the 
the immersiveness, if you will, with what they're playing in the video game um, experience? I think it's, a, it's an interesting one. So for us, essentially, we're starting with voice and video and the different video games. However, as I said earlier, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to find signals of a specific signature. And this signature of cognitive kind of behavior and a cognitive profile, it transcends all human behavior, really. And that includes how you interact with the Internet, it includes how you interact with your phone. Uh, it includes things like, you know, what websites are you accessing? You know, or do you use a wearable device? What kind of inputs can we get from that? It includes how many phone calls are you making? The more data basically one has on an individual, the more they're able to build out that cognitive profile of the individual and therefore the more they're able to understand them and to understand whether they are or are not potentially suffering from some condition and if so what treatment might actually work for them so i think the more we move into this era of big data and the metaverse and like digital transformation basically we are it is scary in one way because it's like we're we're it opens up this question about how private um, our people's lives and what actually are they exposing to the internet I think that's that's certainly something to think about but also at the same time it offers so much opportunity for companies like Themia to help people um, provided it's done in a completely secure way that respects people's privacy and you do it with the highest uh, security around you which is something we're, we're really proud to to have achieved thus far um, so as long as it's done ethically and securely um, I think this is absolutely an amazing time to be building a company like this, because not just digital transformation in terms of, you know, this is the advancement of AI and everything, but also post-COVID, we've seen over a 20% increase in just pure digital startups since the beginning of COVID. And that's not, not looking at health at all. It's just generally. I think we're entering into this amazing new era um, which will impact people's uh, how people you know assess their own health and how they um, how they can treat their own health, not just um, mentally but also physically. So I think it's really really great time. Absolutely, and if, you know I'm also just thinking about the timing of Themia, especially you know we're emerging out of COVID, <laughs> some countries faster than others, but you know this has had a a pivotal role in people's self reflection. We've heard about the Great Resignation. We've heard about the great dispersion. You know, there's been huge ramifications on people's sense of mental health and wellness. Um, where does Themia fit into this picture? And what do you sort of propose will be the future based on just kind of what we're emerging out of, you know, post the pandemic? I think that any anything that any company can do to really help support people at this time, not just with COVID, but also um, obviously now there's lots of other things happening in the world, which are tragic and which um, are affecting people's mental health. Anything that companies can do to support people, um, I think is, is absolutely fantastic. And especially now, I think it's not just people themselves who like, <laughs> um, I should rephrase that, it's not just patients or people seeking help who are dealing with um, issues post the pandemic. 
Um, it's also clinicians themselves. So we've seen an enormous spike in burnout for clinicians, uh, physical clinicians, but also mental health clinicians. They're trying to support patients, but they just don't have the capacity. They just don't have the numbers. Um, numbers of psychiatrists were shrinking to begin with, and now um, numbers have, have, have um, lessened even more. And so any kind of support that we can offer them as well, not just in taking care of people, but also monitoring their own mental health. I think that's something that's really, really important at this point in time, for sure. Absolutely. Last words, um, any advice that you could give? I mean, again, you have been able to do extremely well as a female entrepreneur in a fairly male-dominated world of health tech industry. And in addition, you don't have necessarily a technical background. So becoming CEO of a tech company, what advice can you give to other aspiring entrepreneurs, especially female ones, on how to how to do this? Yeah, I think it's very much uh, an incredible, an incredibly steep learning curve um, to begin with. Jumping out of academia and jumping straight into building a company, even with the support of an accelerator program like we had, we we were founded with an entrepreneur first here in the UK. Even with that, I think it is just an immense learning curve. So you have to be willing to put in the effort, the time to, to make this essentially work. It, you know, it, it's, it's not something that's fantastic, but for the first year or two, it becomes your life. You have to be willing to make those sacrifices. I think particularly being a woman, in the beginning, I didn't really think it, think about it at all. I think I was very naive coming out of academia because you don't really see so much discrimination um, within academia, or at least people try to fight against it, and there are systems in place to fight against it. But moving into the entrepreneurship world and having to pitch to VCs in particular, as a deep tech company, one of the ways you move forward is pitching to VCs and raising funding. I was shocked by the response I got from some VCs and how backward thinking they were, how narrow minded. Uh, I was worrying initially that things like, you know, my nose ring or something like that might make people think I'm less professional. But actually, my gender was the thing that seemed to to affect some of the conversations more. So I heard all sorts of things like, oh, what if you want to have a baby? Um, So, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or... I have a male co-founder, my CTO, who's amazing at what he does. But when somebody asks me, well, why isn't he the CEO? Well, why would he be? He's the CTO. Um, So that, I think, was something I wasn't very well prepared for. I would say to particularly female founders, be aware of that and be prepared to fight really hard for this. But certainly it's, it's absolutely doable. And you know, you can always uh, prove everybody wrong by uh, just going on and being super successful. Love it. And I absolutely love what you and Themia are doing. I think you're an absolute wonderful inspiration for so oh, many people. So much. And I hope a lot of people get to listen to this as well. For those of you who are interested in connecting with Amelia, speaking about her company, finding out how you can get involved, um, doing some work. And actually, if you have, you know, a practice and you'd like to start using them, please look for her contact details in the show notes below. Um, We also encourage you that if you enjoy this conversation, check out impetusdigital.com. These are the kinds of conversations we have with other people like physicians, allied healthcare providers, payers, and patients. As you're sort of discovering new ways and methodologies, we work with pharma companies, we work with, you know, again, we talk about a lot of companies getting into psychedelics and other things. 
on looking at strategies, how to do clinical trials, how to insert various technologies. We do this through a series of asynchronous and synchronous touch points until you can start to gather the insights and the information that you need to move your strategy and brand forward. Please, um, thank you so much for your time. We encourage you to like and subscribe to our channel and please leave us some feedback on iTunes. I wanna thank everybody for being here with us. And Amelia, thank you for an outstanding conversation. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.